You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 97, The Rights of War. Thanks for joining me. As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. If you're not signed up on Patreon, you've been missing out on the dispatches. We now have several hours of exclusive bonus content available for just $2 a month. The last dispatch included discussions of technology in the Napoleonic Wars, and a reflection on Tolstoy and the nature of history. And of course, subscribers also get access to ad-free versions of the regular episodes. I've actually really been enjoying the dispatches. We've gotten some fantastic questions, and it's been fun to leave the narrative behind and talk to you guys a little more informally. Obviously, the more people join, the better it is, so I hope you'll consider it. Visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon to sign up. Anyway, we left off last time in autumn of 1806. Napoleon was in northeastern Germany. In the wake of their smashing victories over the Prussians at Jena and Auerstedt, the Grande Armée fanned out across the region, netting tens of thousands more Prussian prisoners and occupying territory, both from the enemy and from neutral states. French troops took Berlin on October 27th, facing no resistance. At least one French officer was contemptuous of the Prussians' failure to defend their capital. Quote, We arrived at the Berlin Heights, having done several marches and not having met a single enemy sharpshooter. What had happened to that fine Prussian army which had waited for us so proudly on the battlefield of Jena, and whose lowliest officer thought himself a Frederick the Great? End quote. As I mentioned last episode, Marshal Davout's Third Corps was given the honor of being first to enter the enemy capital, well deserved after their astonishing performance at the Battle of Auerstedt. Napoleon himself entered Berlin alongside the Imperial Guard. They paraded through the city to the Charlottenburg Palace, which would become Napoleon's residence and headquarters during his stay in the city. Even in late October, the weather was fine, and considerable crowds turned out to watch the Grande Armée enter the city. The French government's official newspaper, Le Moniteur, described the scene this way, quote, All the inhabitants went before his majesty. Hats were thrown in the air on all sides. Cries of, Long live the emperor filled the air. This evening, the entire town was illuminated. The streets were filled with people. To tell the truth, you would have thought you were in France at a public ceremony. End quote. At least, that was how the scene was presented in French propaganda. Less biased sources describe the crowd as silent. There must have been a whole range of emotions among the Berliners watching their city's conquerors. I would imagine shock and curiosity were foremost in many people's minds, rather than devotion to a foreign emperor. There was also probably outrage at the extensive looting carried out by French soldiers, and the heavy requisitions of food and supplies by their officers. A young French captain would later recall, quote, The emperor moved proudly along in his plain outfit, with his small hat and cheap cockade. His staff was in full uniform, and it was a curious sight to see the worst-dressed man as the master of such a splendid army. 
The people were gazing out of the windows, as the Parisians did on the day we came back from Austerlitz. It was grand to see this great populace crowding the streets to see us, and following us wherever we went. We were lodged in private houses, and fed at the expense of the inhabitants, with orders to give us a bottle of wine every day. It was hard upon the citizens, for a bottle of wine cost three francs. Not being able to procure wine, they begged us to instead take beer in little jugs. At roll call, all the grenadiers spoke about it to their officers, who told us not to force them to give us wine, as the beer was excellent. End quote. The French made a somewhat shabby first impression on some Berliners. In many parts of the city, the first Frenchmen they saw were not the men of Davout's corps, on parade in their fine uniforms, but foraging parties, sent into the city to find food. One resident would later recall, quote, The first infantryman entered. He was tall and thin with a pale face, covered in black scrubby hair. We were amazed at his garb. He had a short cape covering his body. On his head was a small battered hat of an indescribable shape, but pushed so far back and at such an insolent angle that the face and hat were, for us, the object of great amazement. The cloth trousers were dirty and exceedingly torn. His feet were bare in his worn-out shoes. A small hairy dog watched his mouth very attentively as he bit off large chunks of bread to throw to him. Just imagine, a soldier with a dog on a leash and half a loaf of bread stuck on the end of his bayonet. From his musket hung a goose, and on his hat, instead of an insignia, gleamed a pewter spoon. End quote. You can imagine what the Berliners must have been thinking as this vagabond wandered the streets demanding food. Could this sorry specimen really come from the army that had just annihilated most of the Prussian military? For their part, the French were not overly impressed by Berlin. Many of them commented on the city's beauty, including Napoleon, but there was a condescending edge to their comments. Today, Berlin is one of the world's great cities, but at the dawn of the 19th century, it was much smaller than other European capitals, and generally considered less sophisticated. One French officer referred to it patronizingly as a, quote, little Paris, end quote. Henri Bell, a young but already somewhat crotchety French bureaucrat, wrote in a letter home, quote, In all the unpaved places, your foot sinks down to the ankle, and sand has turned the outskirts of the city into a desert. They only grow trees and a little grass. I don't know what gave them the idea to put a city in the middle of all this sand. They say this town has 150,000 inhabitants, end quote. Bell would later go on to achieve great literary fame under his pen name, Stendhal. As we discussed last episode, there was an edge to the French occupation. Some within the Grande Armée felt they had scores to settle with the Prussians. Shortly after the French took control of the city, the captured members of the Prussian Garde du Corps regiment were paraded in front of the French embassy. You might remember that during the run-up to this war, the men of the Garde du Corps had menaced the embassy staff by sharpening their sabers on the stone steps of the building. Obviously, their captors wanted to make a point about the folly of threatening France. As we've already mentioned, there was also extensive looting, and the residents of the city were obliged to feed and shelter their conquerors. But interactions between the French and the Berliners were not all negative. According to several sources, life within the Prussian capital more or less returned to normal the day after the arrival of the Grande Armée. That included the Berlin social scene. But there was one snack. Prussia was a small country. It had to put a huge proportion of its male population in uniform to compete with the other great powers. With so many middle- and upper-class men serving as officers, and now dead, in French custody, or fled east with the king, the city had lost almost all of its eligible bachelors. According to the social conventions of the time, unmarried women needed an appropriate male escort for many social occasions. 
And so the fine young ladies of Berlin had little choice but to fraternize with the French officers, or stay locked up in their homes. Apparently, both sides were surprised by the cordialness of these interactions. There were even some real romances. Of course, this only added to the resentment and humiliation of the Prussian officer corps. Imagine suffering the defeats of the preceding weeks, and then, to add insult to injury, learning the girl you left behind was being squired around town by a French officer. In the taverns and beer halls of the city, many French officers and soldiers developed a fondness for goza, a sour, citrusy, effervescent style of wheat beer that was popular in Berlin at the time. Apparently, the men of the Grande Armée took to calling Goza German Champagne, which I think is very high praise coming from Frenchmen. This interlude in Berlin was a happy time for Napoleon's men. By now, they had been fighting for about a year straight, and before that, many of them had been at the camp of Boulogne since 1803. That's three years living in tents and improvised shelters in rainy northern Europe rarely, if ever, getting a chance to see home. In Berlin, they had roofs over their heads and warm hearths to come home to, plenty of food to eat and plenty of beer and wine to drink, and the population was relatively friendly, or at least ambivalent to their presence. Berlin was like an oasis in the desert. Maybe it was appropriate that it was so sandy. Once again, I'm struck by the strange mix of fascination and hatred that governed relations between the French and the Prussians. Despite the somewhat relaxed attitude of the people of Berlin, autumn of 1806 had been one of the darkest times in Prussian history. The state had suffered blow after blow at the hands of Napoleon and his armies. Now, most of its military was destroyed, and most of its territory occupied. However, the consequences of these disasters remained to be seen. It would probably be within Napoleon's power to subordinate Prussia to France, or even dismantle it entirely. But, as of yet, no one knew exactly what the Emperor of the French planned to do with his new conquests. Despite the near-total collapse of the Prussian state, the war between France and Prussia had not ended. King Frederick William had not offered or accepted terms, but instead had fled east, towards the border with Russia. By this point in our story, the king had established himself at the last major Prussian city free from French occupation, Königsberg, in East Prussia, today the small Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, nestled between Poland and Lithuania. With huge Russian armies massing nearby, the Grande Armée could not immediately follow. And so, Königsberg would serve as a rallying point for what remained of Prussia's armies, court, and government. Frederick William was joined by a small but steady stream of soldiers, politicians, and nobles who had managed to evade the French and wanted to continue the fight. Prussia was down, but not out. Not yet the war would continue. However, for the moment, it would continue mostly on paper. The Grande Armée needed to catch its breath after the lightning campaign of the preceding weeks. As we discussed last episode, by early November, each corps was down to a fraction of its theoretical fighting strength, having left behind thousands of men who could not be supplied across such long distances, or were too exhausted to continue the advance. They needed time to rest and gather these men back together before they could risk approaching the Russian border. They also needed time to secure their new conquests, to establish depots and bases of operations, set up supply lines, and gather food and equipment for the next phase of the fight. For the time being, the French would not be going anywhere in any significant numbers. You might think this would have been a perfect opportunity for the Russians to strike. As we've mentioned in several past episodes, they were indeed marshalling forces in the western parts of their empire to march against France once again. However, these troops were not yet ready. With the bitter Central European winter fast approaching, they would not risk sending large formations into uncertain conditions until they were completely prepared. 
The remains of the Prussian military at Königsberg certainly dreamed of retaking their country, but they knew they would be in no position to actually pursue that dream anytime soon. As we saw many times last episode, they were in bad shape, lacking equipment and short on food, with morale so low that some units were on the verge of mutiny. They needed time to regroup, re-equip, and reorganize, and to recover from the psychological blows of the preceding campaign. And even if the Prussians had been ready to move, they only had around a division's worth of men left. It would have been suicide to march against Napoleon without their Russian allies. The changes in warfare since the beginning of our story had made war much faster. For weeks, the action had come at a furious tempo, but that could no longer be sustained. The war was entering a lull. After General Blücher's defiant surrender outside Lübeck on November 6, 1806, which we discussed last episode, there wouldn't be another engagement for nearly two months. There was action in Poland, as patriotic rebels rose up against their Prussian and Russian occupiers, with help from their French allies, but most of the fighting was small-scale and is not well documented. However, the fact that there were no great battles or grand strategic movements doesn't mean nothing was going on. Late November 1806 would see the War of the Fourth Coalition escalate in a way no conflict in history ever had before. The economic war was heating up. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Economic warfare has been a part of human conflict since the dawn of history. All over the world, and in all kinds of contexts, soldiers, and before that, warriors, have destroyed crops, burned granaries and warehouses, waylaid merchants from enemy countries, and generally played havoc with the enemy's economy wherever they passed. In Europe in the Middle Ages, this was often done for strategic reasons. You invade your enemy's territory, and he and his troops can just sit behind the walls of their castle until your army starts getting sick or running out of food. But start burning his crops, killing his peasants, and destroying the infrastructure in his lands, and he might be forced to come out from behind those walls and face you in battle, or risk being ruined. The common people bore the brunt of these types of tactics. There were good reasons that for most of history, average civilians feared soldiers. The economic destruction wrought by pre-modern and early modern armies could be horrifying, but it tended to be limited. Those unfortunate enough to be in the path of an army might be completely ruined, but people living only a short distance away in the same country might not even notice a change in prices. Markets were smaller, simpler, and more self-contained in earlier eras of history. Today, in our hyper-connected global market, a bad wheat harvest in one region can have an impact on food prices everywhere on Earth. But before the modern era, when markets were smaller and more isolated, the economic shockwaves from an army burning crops or destroying infrastructure didn't have the same opportunity to spread. The devastation tended to stay localized. However, by the Napoleonic period, economies were becoming more complex. The world was more connected than it ever had been before. A change in the price of cotton in India could put people out of work in England, on the other side of the world. As we saw in our episodes on the Haitian Revolution, a disruption in cash crop production in the West Indies could have grave economic consequences for tens of thousands of people in France. Think of an economy like a machine. The engineers who operate the machine work hard to make it more productive 
and in doing so they make its mechanisms more complex. So, as the machine gets more productive, it also requires more inputs and maintenance. It has more moving pieces inside. It is producing more, but there's also a lot more that can go wrong. If one of those moving pieces breaks, or if some of the inputs or maintenance products become unavailable, the machine might not function properly. As we've discussed in many past episodes, the war between Britain and France had an unusual dynamic, with the French dominant on land and the British with almost total control over the seas. We saw France's attempt to challenge British naval power end in an absolutely breathtaking failure at Trafalgar. The British attempts to challenge France on land hadn't been quite so spectacular, but there had been a lot of them, and they had failed as well. British ground troops had landed in northern Germany, southern Italy, Haiti, and two different times in the Netherlands, and all these efforts had produced little more than casualties. The British army had achieved success against the French in Egypt, but that was against a depleted and marooned army, and it had taken three years to finish them off, with assistance from the Ottomans. So, neither side had much hope of striking directly at its enemy anytime soon. Both British and French policymakers were forced to look for more creative ways to wage war, new fronts to open outside the traditional spheres of combat. The increasingly elaborate economic machines that were coming into being in both countries made very tempting targets. These emerging capitalist economies were powerful tools of war. They provided credit and war materials. Their merchant fleets trained sailors and developed shipbuilding capacity, which could be used by the navy, and increased efficiency freed up more men to leave the workforce and join the military. But the complexities of these new economic systems also made them vulnerable. As we discussed, they were like elaborate machines, with all kinds of moving pieces. If the enemy could break or disturb just one of those pieces, the whole machine could be damaged, or even destroyed, with grave consequences for the entire nation. Imagine if you could trigger a financial panic or a stock market crash in an enemy country, or cripple one of their key industries by starving it of raw materials. What if you could disrupt the food supply? We saw in our episodes on the French Revolution how serious the consequences could be for a government that failed to feed its people. In previous eras of history, such things weren't really worth thinking about, but with the capabilities of an early 19th century European state and the vulnerabilities of these emerging globalized capitalist economies, this type of economic warfare was becoming a possibility. Today, we take it for granted that measures like sanctions and blockades are a part of warfare. In fact, you could make the argument that in many cases, these types of hostile economic measures have actually begun to supplant traditional military conflict. But real systematic economic warfare, as we know it today, is only a little over 200 years old. To take one example I've always liked, as recently as the Seven Years' War, British investors bought shares in French privateering expeditions. For those of you who aren't aware, a privateer is essentially a legal pirate, a civilian mariner granted a government license to prey on enemy shipping during wartime. It seems insane that these British investors were effectively paying to damage their own country's economy, but from their perspective, it was a smart move. They were hedging. Imagine it's the late 1750s, and you're a wealthy English person, invested in a company that sells tea, imported from India. If the cargo of that company's tea is intercepted and taken by a French privateer, your investment loses value. However, if you are also invested in that privateer, either outcome results in you getting paid, a very clever investment strategy. Although, as this trick got more popular, the financiers of London were effectively paying a subsidy to the enemy war effort. Amazingly, this was not technically illegal, although the British government did eventually step in and put a stop to it. I've always found that anecdote amusing, but it's also a good illustration of just how far economic warfare was from most people's minds in the 18th century. 
you would think it would be common sense to not directly fund enemy raiding expeditions on your own country's merchants, particularly if you are heavily invested in your country's stock market. But 18th century people thought of war very differently. We've talked in many past episodes about the ways war was changing. In France, and increasingly in the rest of Europe, people were beginning to think of war not only as a limited contest between individual monarchs, but as something all-encompassing, a struggle between entire nations, in which all of society's resources had to be mobilized for victory. Economic resources were no exception. As the world's leading commercial power, it's probably no surprise that the British were pioneers in economic warfare. Not long after they joined the War of the First Coalition, all the way back in 1792, the British government began restricting trade with revolutionary France. The French followed suit, and thus began a tit-for-tat escalation. At first, these measures were relatively timid, and both countries' navies lacked the resources and know-how to enforce them with any seriousness. As we saw in past episodes, during this period, the French navy was struggling just to keep itself together. But as the war raged on, the economic struggle heated up. Restrictions on both sides grew tighter, escalating in turn. The French announced new trade restrictions in retaliation for the British blockade which led to the British tightening their own restrictions, etc. By 1800, the Royal Navy was claiming the right to board all ships, even those from neutral states, to search for cargo bound for France, which they would seize as contraband. This was almost unprecedented in the history of warfare, and many neutral powers considered it a violation of international law. Opposition to this policy led to the formation of the League of Armed Neutrality. We discussed this in detail back in episode 58, so I won't delve back into it too deeply, but it was an alliance of neutral states, led by Russia, which hoped to use their collective power to pressure Britain into relaxing its blockade. For a short time, the alliance was a serious threat to Britain's diplomatic position but Nelson's victory at the Battle of Copenhagen and the timely assassination of the Russian emperor, possibly with British encouragement, broke up the League before it could force a confrontation. Commerce between France and Britain resumed after the Treaty of Amiens, but as you might recall from past episodes, Napoleon refused to negotiate a commercial treaty that would have regulated and normalized trade between the two powers. Napoleon believed any peace treaty with Britain would be temporary, and resuming trade on a large scale would be to Britain's advantage, as they had the stronger economy. In a sense, this was a self-fulfilling prophecy, because the lack of strong commercial ties made a slide back into acrimony and war almost inevitable. When Britain chose to resume the war in early 1803, they did so with a bang. Weeks before the war recommenced, orders went out to Royal Navy vessels all over the world for a synchronized attack on French shipping the day the conflict began. This was not an easy feat in the era before electronic communications, but the British pulled it off. On May 18, 1803, the French merchant fleet was devastated all over the world, as unsuspecting ships were seized by the Royal Navy. Today, that just sounds like clever strategy. But at the time, many were outraged, especially in France, obviously. Those captured merchants had no idea their country was at war with Britain until it was too late to even attempt to escape. They had undertaken their voyages without assuming the risks of wartime. And, perhaps most importantly, their investors and insurers hadn't taken those risks into account either. Napoleon himself was infuriated. He considered this a dastardly act, and I think also, probably subconsciously, was angry at himself for failing to see this coming. He had known peace with Britain would not last, but had badly miscalculated how much time France had before hostilities resumed. He would reinstate all the old restrictions on British trade from the last war, but that wouldn't be enough. From Bonaparte's perspective, Britain had just escalated the economic war yet again and France needed to show its strength by answering in kind. 
And so, Napoleon ordered all British subjects in French-controlled territory arrested and detained. These detainees would be held as prisoners of war, meaning indefinitely and without trial or any other oversight from the civilian court system. The only remedy was a personal petition to Napoleon himself. Just like those French merchants captured by the Royal Navy, many British detainees had been in France on business or vacation, been caught off guard by the declaration of war, and hadn't had time to leave the country. Once again, today this is seen as more or less standard practice during wartime. During the last major conflict between the Great Powers, the Second World War, every participant took measures against enemy aliens. Even the so-called democratic powers, like the United States and Great Britain, detained thousands of people without trial, whose only crime was being born in a country ruled by a hostile government. But back in 1803, there was very little precedent for this broad draconian policy. Now it was France's turn to be the target of international outrage and condemnation. Sadly, this is a common theme in the history of warfare. Things can become normalized shockingly quickly. A government comes up with some new way to wage war, and it's almost inevitably greeted with horror and denounced by rival powers. But almost as soon as they finish drafting their denunciations, necessity forces them to follow suit. And before you know it, what was once an act of unprecedented barbarity has become a normal part of warfare. Living in a world in which sanctions have become a frequent tool of government policy, it can be easy to forget that there is something barbaric about economic warfare. Strip away all the layers of abstraction, and economic warfare means sowing misery indiscriminately across an entire population. A blockade doesn't care whether or not you signed up to be a part of this war, or even if you agree with your government's policies. Fortunes that took a lifetime to build are wiped away. Workers lose jobs and are thrown out on the street. Families are separated. Children starve. There is a great degree of randomness, but typically it is the poorest, who have the least influence on government policy, who suffer the most. Economic warfare destroys lives, and even kills people, just as surely as cannon blasts and musket volleys. The British and the French were dabbling in a very dark art. And the escalation just continued. In early 1806, Britain banned all trade with ports between the city of Brest, on the very northwestern tip of France, and the mouth of the river Elba, where the city of Hamburg sits. And this meant all trade. It did not only apply to British shipping. They claimed the right to block neutral merchants from these ports as well. In essence, this meant the end of non-British international trade in the North Sea and the English Channel. Throughout the year, these restrictions were extended until they effectively represented a general ban on all trade with France and French-controlled Europe. Once again, Bonaparte would respond in kind. On November 21st, 1806, Napoleon issued a decree from his headquarters in Berlin. Quote, the present decree shall be considered as the fundamental law of the empire, until England has acknowledged that the rights of war are the same on land as at sea, that it cannot be extended to any private property whatsoever, nor to persons who are not military, and until the right of blockade be restrained to fortified places actually invested by competent forces. Article 1 the British Isles are declared to be in a state of blockade. Article 2. All commerce and correspondence with the British Isles are prohibited. In consequence, letters or packages addressed either to England, to an Englishman, or in the English language shall not pass through the post office and shall be seized. Article 3. Every subject of England, of any rank or condition whatsoever, who shall be found in the countries occupied by our troops or by those of our allies, shall be made a prisoner of war. Article 4. All inventories, merchandise, or property whatsoever belonging to a subject of England shall be declared a lawful prize. Article 5. The trade in English merchandise is forbidden. 
all merchandise belonging to England or coming from its manufactories and colonies is declared a lawful prize. End quote. These regulations would come to be known as the Berlin Decree or Berlin Decrees, and this new blockade structure would be known as the Continental System. Britain and France were now engaged in true economic warfare, each side trying to starve the other of resources and choke off their access to lucrative markets. Of course, the two sides in this struggle were not equal. Britain controlled the seas and had a clear superiority in both manufacturing and international trade. A member of the British House of Lords joked that Napoleon's blockade of Britain would be about as effective as an attempt to blockade the moon. In practice, this new escalation of economic war would see France trying to keep British goods off the continent, and trying to use its navy and privateers to degrade Britain's commercial sector, while building up its own manufacturing and trade capabilities to provide substitutes for British goods. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Privateers would be a big part of this struggle. At their peak, more than 200 privateering expeditions would sail from French ports every year. The Corsairs, as they were commonly known, plied their deadly trade all over the world, as far west as the Caribbean and as far east as the Bay of Bengal and the coast of Indonesia. There was a long tradition of privateering in France, especially in the port city of Saint-Malo in Brittany, where it was one of the leading industries. Many of the corsairs who fought in the Napoleonic Wars had fathers, uncles, cousins, or grandfathers who had done the same during the American War of Independence or the Seven Years' War. Some prominent corsair families had been in the privateering business since the Renaissance. Estimates vary, but over the course of the Napoleonic Wars, the corsairs might have taken as many as 11,000 enemy merchant ships. British cargo losses to French and French-allied privateers would outnumber losses to accidents, storms, and all other causes combined. When corsairs captured a ship, they brought it back to a French-controlled port where the vessel and its contents would be auctioned to the highest bidder. The corsairs were entitled to half the proceeds of the auction, which would be divided up among the crew according to rank. Captains and senior officers on Corsair ships could get extremely wealthy very quickly. Average sailors on a successful privateering expedition often made much more than their counterparts in the Navy. No surprise, many French mariners preferred privateering to naval service. The government had to come up with all kinds of incentives to try to entice people away from privateering towards the Navy. Privateering could be lucrative, but it also came with enormous risks. On top of all the usual hazards of the sea, they often found themselves tangling with the Royal Navy. Corsairs favored small, fast-moving ships, capable of taking down a merchant vessel, but usually outclassed by a real warship. And as the war dragged on, British merchants began arming themselves. Their ships could be quite large, and if crewed and equipped properly, they could be formidable. More than a third of privateer expeditions never returned home. There is a great deal of historical debate over the effectiveness of the Corsairs. I have seen historians use the same data to reach completely opposite conclusions, some arguing that French privateers were never much more than a dangerous nuisance, others claiming they were a serious threat to the British war effort. 
Whatever the case, the British government took action to defend its maritime trade. British merchant vessels traveling outside British territorial waters were legally required to sail in convoys, in which a large group of merchants going roughly the same direction would all sail together, guarded by Royal Navy warships. And there was an open invitation for all neutral shipping to join any British convoy. You would think the merchants would have been grateful to be protected from the corsairs, but this regulation was actually very unpopular. Time is money, particularly for those who dealt in perishable goods, which might spoil and become worthless in the time it took to wait for a convoy to form. British merchants were constantly pestering the government for special licenses to sail independently without a convoy. But there were also powerful interests making the opposite argument. Lloyds of London, a wealthy insurance firm which had a near monopoly on insuring foreign trade expeditions, was always pressuring the government just as hard to limit these special permissions, to avoid paying out policies on vessels lost to the corsairs. To modern ears, this all might sound a bit like a dress rehearsal for the events of the two world wars. Britain's enemies hoping to use commerce raiding to choke the British economy into submission. The 20th century British government responded in much the same way as the 19th century British government, forming a convoy system very similar to the one pioneered in the Napoleonic Wars. The German U-boats of the Second World War sailed from some of the same ports in western France that had been used by the Corsairs over a hundred years earlier. But the Corsairs and blockades of the Napoleonic era seem pretty quaint by comparison. For all the grand pronouncements coming out of the King's Privy Council and Napoleon's headquarters, neither the British nor the French governments actually had the capabilities to enforce these policies on the anarchic, individualistic world of commerce. In almost any place and any historical context, merchants are much more interested in their bottom line than they are in upholding government policy. Generally speaking, British businessmen were happy to sell their goods in French-controlled territory, and many in French-dominated Europe were eager to buy British goods, and vice versa. For many merchants in European waters, all this economic warfare really meant was that they now had to keep two sets of books, one that showed them only doing business with neutral or British ports to show to the British, and another that only showed them doing business at neutral or French-aligned ports, to show the French. There was also the matter of Russia. As allies of the British, they were more than happy to let British merchants enter their ports, and once British cargo was unloaded on Russian territory, it was just a matter of smuggling it west, across a massive and almost totally unguarded land border, into French-dominated Europe. On top of endemic smuggling, there was actually extensive legal commerce between Britain and Napoleonic Europe. In both the French and British empires, there were procedures to apply for official licenses to trade with the enemy. Both governments were happy to grant this permission when it was in their interests. Usually, these licenses were granted for goods for which the rival power was willing to pay gold under the theory that draining the enemy gold reserves was worth more to the war effort than starving them of resources. This was particularly important for Britain, which was not fully self-sufficient in food. As we discussed back in episode 58, food shortages and price spikes in 1800 and 1801 had caused widespread social unrest, and put the government under tremendous pressure. This had actually been one factor in forcing Prime Minister William Pitt to resign and convincing Britain to seek peace with France. The British government was very conscious of the price of food, and when they were faced with another bad harvest in 1809, they didn't hesitate to import large amounts of grain from France and from the French-dominated Kingdom of Holland. In granting permission for these exports, Napoleon may have saved Britain from famine, and missed an opportunity to squeeze its government. But apparently, Bonaparte believed it was more important to siphon a little gold out of the country. Economic warfare was still a new concept. Rulers and governments were beginning to think about these matters in a way we would recognize. But they also still clung to a lot of outdated old notions. 
this obsession with gold, rooted in the mercantilist theories of the early modern period, is a prime example. So, as our story continues, economic warfare will become more and more important. We've talked a lot on the show about all the ways warfare was changing during this period, how armies were raised and organized, how states and societies related to their militaries, and the types of tactics and strategies that were enabled by all these changes. This is another important element to that story. Economic warfare in this period looks pretty rudimentary and limited compared to what would come later, but it had an important impact on events. As we'll see in future episodes, maintaining the blockade against the enemy would become almost as important a consideration as destroying their armies and occupying their territory. In fact, you could make the argument that with his decision to wage economic warfare on Britain, Napoleon was sowing the seeds of his own downfall. But that's a topic for the future. Neutral countries viewed these developments with horror. Britain and France controlled most of the biggest markets in the world. Trading with one meant risking having your cargo seized by the other. Trading with both, which almost every merchant in European waters would have preferred, added the additional risk of being treated like a smuggler. Neutral countries protested loudly, but no one was listening. The League of Armed Neutrality was long gone. All the great powers of Europe had taken a side in this war. Complaints about international law and the rights of free trade don't amount to much without force to back them up. The only country of any consequence still carrying the banner for freedom of commerce was a small, weak, and distant secondary power, the United States of America. Today, it might sound a bit strange to talk about the U.S. in those terms, but by this point in our story, the American War of Independence was just barely two decades in the past. It had only been 19 years since the breakaway colonies had finally settled on a constitution. Compared to the great powers of Europe, the USA was small, poor, and militarily weak. There were still those who predicted the country would fail entirely and fall back into domination from Europe. The American economy was highly dependent on European trade, and had already suffered greatly as a result of the ongoing wars on the continent. From 1798 to 1800, America had actually been close to war with France over Corsair attacks on American merchants trading with Britain. Things had gotten so bad that French and American warships had actually fought pitched battles on the Atlantic and in the Caribbean. The two countries walked right to the brink of war before the politicians and diplomats managed to hammer out a compromise. By this point in our story, the shoe was on the other foot. American merchants were up in arms over their treatment by the Royal Navy. The British claimed the right to seize any cargo bound for France or French-allied countries, and British captains had an obvious financial incentive to interpret this mandate as broadly as possible. To put it bluntly, the Americans believed Britain had effectively claimed the right to steal from them, and the British believed the Americans were hiding behind the excuse of free trade to play a double game. Worse than that, it had become official British policy to abduct any American sailor born in British territory for service in the Royal Navy, under the theory that they remained British subjects, even if they had been legally naturalized as American citizens. America had been a part of the British Empire until quite recently and was already a popular destination for immigrants. So this rule applied to a lot of men on American ships, and as the war dragged on and the Royal Navy faced a perpetual shortage of experienced sailors, British captains became desperate for manpower, and sometimes were not too careful about who they abducted. This policy was referred to as impressment, and it became a source of deep public outrage in the United States. Now, the British were tightening their blockade around French-controlled Europe even further. That would inevitably mean stopping more American ships, seizing more American cargo, and impressing more American sailors. As I mentioned in a recent dispatch, not everyone in America had moved on from the War of Independence. There were still many Americans who distrusted or even hated the British. Just how far could the British push their former colonies? 
They were losing access to markets all over Europe. Could they really afford to alienate a major trading partner? On the other hand, if the price of America's friendship was loosening the blockade, their only way of striking against France, could the British afford to pay it? British policymakers were in a dilemma. Only time would tell how they would resolve it. It can be tricky to talk about economic warfare in a podcast-friendly format. This was a war of ledger books and customs receipts. The only real battles were fleeting naval encounters, most of which were pretty anticlimactic. But try to keep these matters in mind as the narrative continues. You'll see how this comparatively boring side of the war had a profound impact on the course of events. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon was not a natural economic thinker. He had a deeply ingrained skepticism of finance. And, although he admired men of commerce and did his best to encourage their endeavors, he seems not to have really understood the forces that animated the world of business, in the same way he intuitively understood the worlds of politics, society, intellectual life, and, of course, the military world. But necessity would force economic considerations to the forefront of his decision-making. In the coming years, maintaining and strengthening the continental system would become an increasingly important part of French foreign policy. By the end of the Napoleonic Wars, it would become the dominant concern of French diplomacy. But that's all for the future. Before I go, I'll remind you once again to visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon if you want access to the dispatches. There will be another one coming out in a few weeks. If you're already signed up, thank you. And don't forget to leave any questions for the next installment in the comments of last month's dispatch. Anyway, that's all for now. As always, thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.